Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Jonathan Mazera. He is the co-founder of Gem City Butchery out in Dayton, Ohio. You can also find him running the food program at Silver Slipper Wine Bar, which is also in Dayton, and in the kitchen at Jollity, and uh, helping out with Koji Burger, too, as well, which is uh, the burger concept from the Jollity guys there, Zach and Brennan, who have both been on this podcast previously, too, as well. So check out those episodes if you haven't. I wanted to have Jonathan on just because... It's been a while since we had somebody who's really passionate about butchery come on the podcast. You know, we had Dan Varga of The Hungarian Butcher, Wesley Grubbs, who has a pretty big passion for butchery, pretty solid background in that and something that he wants to pursue probably down the line as he gets towards the end of his career, you know, as we kind of touched on and spoke about. But there's just not a lot of butchers around. You know, there's not a lot of standalone butcher shops or anything like that. I mean, we have here in Columbus, maybe like four or five, I think. You know, Cincinnati, I think maybe has a couple. Cleveland kind of has a couple. And and that's excluding the ones that you'd find in like the market stalls and stuff like that. I'm talking like a standalone butcher shop, you know, that you have to drive to and park and walk in and it's just them. That's their entire location is there. There's just not a whole lot of those around anymore. You know, you find them in the different food halls. You'll find a place that sells meats and, you know, is a purveyor of that or whatever. But just the kind of old school neighborhood butcher shop, the guy kind of knows your order when you come in, sees you, you know, once a month. That just doesn't really exist anymore. So when we find people that are kind of doing something similar to that or trying to replicate that in some way, but put their own spin on it, it's super interesting, you know, for us and, and definitely wanted to have Jonathan on to talk about that. You know, they have the butcher aspect of it, but they're also going to have, you know, the catering side of things and also a food menu. And so it there's different prongs to kind of the Gem City butchery concept, which he kind of gets into too as well. So you can follow Jonathan on Instagram. His handle is at Jonathan Mazera. It's Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N, Mazera, M-E-Z-E-R-A, all one word. Also follow Gem City Butchery. It's at Gem City Butchery. You can follow Jollity at Jollity Dayton. Uh, Koji Burger at Koji Burger underscore DYT. And then also Silver Slipper Wine Bar, which is just at Silver Slipper Wine Bar on Instagram. So he's kind of involved in all those other businesses currently too, as well as they're getting Gem City Butchery up and running. Follow us on Instagram too, as well. We're at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias. We usually... Uh, throw out uh, just a quick update on TikTok. You can follow us there. It's just at SpoonMob2 as well. We kind of throw that up a day before a podcast release. It's kind of the plan there. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com, different profiles for all of our guests, contact information where they're at. We keep it all updated too as well. If they open a new concept, they change where they're working or whatever, we kind of include a little byline there too, right below um, all their contact info. We have links to all the episodes. So whatever episode that somebody's been on, if they've been on multiple, they're all there in their page. But we also have a master list on the website too as well. So check that out. There's also a contact portal. can write in questions, comments, feedback, anything you ever wanted to ask a chef or restaurant owner or sommelier, shoot that in. We'll get it to kind of the right episode, the one that it's going to fit the best with. And we'll let you know what episode that was and when it's coming out so you can kind of be part of the podcast. That's kind of a cool little interactive thing that we do. Also make sure to check out our YouTube channel. It's uh, up there on YouTube. I think it's just at SpoonMob. If you type in youtube.com backslash at SpoonMob, it should come up. But we usually put a link up to it, but all the podcasts hit YouTube about a week after they come out on the podcast apps. So if YouTube's your preferred player, you can use that instead of one of the podcast apps, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, whatever, we're on all of them. 
And last but not least, make sure to go vote for us, uh, the Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards. We are one of the four finalists for the Best Community Partner Award. I don't really recognize the other three names. Who's up there? I think they're different parts of the state, but we're up there. Um, so make sure to give us a vote. Uh, you can go to OhioRestaurantAssociation.com. We put up links to as well. There's a post um, that we have pinned uh, in our Instagram profile too as well chapman's just posted something they're up uh for kind of best restaurant central so they have a link in their um instagram bio too as well so them commune the refectory joyas i'm trying to think who else warios the guys over at warios are up for all that uh that best restaurant kind of columbus area nolia uh jeff harris they're up for best restaurant south and then cordelia and Vinny Samino, uh, they're up for best restaurant north and then also Vinny is up for like best behind the scenes hospitality insider uh, award too as well. So make sure to give uh, one of those places a vote too as well uh, when you're selected through your categories. But voting runs through the end of the month. So if you haven't, um, go ahead and vote. If you have, I don't think there's a limit on how many times you can vote. So go ahead and give it another shot uh, if you want to vote for a different restaurant. But always kind of just vote for us for best community partner if you're doing multiple votes. But without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Jonathan Mazera, one of the co-founders of Gem City Butchery out in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of your day to jump on. You know, we've had some of your food over at Jollity. Uh, you've been in the kitchen there and you're working on kind of your own butcher shop, essentially. Been kind of working on that for a little bit. So I want to see where you're at with that in the process and timeline of opening and everything. But I always like to kind of start at the beginning with everyone, um, you know, how they kind of first got involved in the industry. So how did you kind of first wind up getting interested in cooking and restaurants? Was it something that you worked in in high school and just kind of fell into? Was it a family lineage, you know, brothers or parents were working in restaurants? First of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. When I reflect on like the, the whole journey into the world of cooking, I guess it all kind of started selfishly more than anything, with a genuine curiosity about how to make whatever it was I wanted to eat. <laughs> Though as a kid, I, I was always fascinated by you know, all the sights and sounds and smells coming from the kitchen when my mom and grandmother prepared meals. The transformative science behind the meal is, I think, what interested me. I found myself drawn to the magic happening, turned into things like cookies and cakes. And then when I was of a you know proper age to use the oven, I started experimenting with basic recipes and techniques, uh, the first being simple baked goods. I actually remember the sense of accomplishment I felt when I made my first batch of snickerdoodle cookies, the first of, of many batches that year. Those small victories fueled my desire to explore the, the world of cooking a little bit further, and I found myself picking more and more recipes out of you know mom's late 1970s cookbook to, to try out. I guess that's how it, it started. And as I got older, obviously, I used the kitchen more and more. And by the time I was a teenager, I was making omelets for breakfast, marrying the grill at family cookouts, um, helping with dinner, that kind of thing. Cooking for me at that time was, you know, a hobby. I didn't, I didn't take it seriously. All I knew is that I liked to eat I wanted to be able to make whatever I was craving, and I, I enjoyed doing it. I took a few different career paths. After high school, I tried 
retail, tried sales. I was a firefighter and paramedic for a little while. Uh, I worked for my father's IT company for a good stretch of time, changed my college major a thousand times. But all the while, ever since I was 16, I've always had one foot in a restaurant. And I've always cooked for myself, my family, and friends during my free time. Uh, I actually started in the, the front of the house and worked my way through every position part-time on nights and weekends while I went to school. And then after several years, I quit my other jobs and dove into the culinary side full-time and did the same. I worked my way through all the, the back-of-house positions from dishwasher to executive chef. And during that journey, I experimented in my, my home kitchen as often as I could. Uh, in the beginning, I taught myself the basics. And then with the help of the internet, learned how to make the food of other ethnicities and cultures. I would, I would search for a specific dish. I'd read about, I don't know, five, 10 different recipe renditions for that dish. And then basically write my own recipe based on my taste preferences, my dish vision, uh, just using what I learned as, as a guideline. I, I determine what ingredients are required to make a dish relatively authentically, but you know, ultimately it's up to me to decide those ratios and whatever else I want to add to it or you know, whether that's ingredients or technique uh, to make it my own. So that whole time period of experimentation is, I think I got a, a good grip on ratios in a recipe in general. It's also when I build up my, my taste memory, which has been imperative to, to creating original dish ideas on paper before, you know, actual trial runs or execution. Experimentation, you know, got a little uh, lawless eventually, <laughs> which allowed me to see firsthand how, how my decisions affected the, the final outcome of the dish, giving reason to the rules behind the recipe. When, when my cooks ask, you know, what does that do or why do you do that? I want to be able to have an answer for them. Otherwise, you know, they're, they're not learning from me, which encourages me to stay curious and, and keep learning so that I can, I can share it and I can be a, a valuable resource for others. You know, anyone can, can read and follow a recipe, but to know what each ingredient and technique does and what the recipe would be like without it is, is what makes a, a knowledgeable, well-rounded cook. So after moving from front of the house to the back of the house, that's when I, I really started taking it seriously. Anyone that knows me knows that I am, I'm not a serious guy, but, but I do care about the food that I put out. At that time, I, I sought out other opportunities to, to immerse myself in the culinary world. I you know, devoured cookbooks. I watched all the cooking shows. Worked at great restaurants, befriended some amazing chefs that, you know, inspire me daily. And over time, my, my involvement with cooking just kind of evolved from, you know, a hobby to, to a career. And I started experimenting with more complex recipes, pushing the boundaries of my culinary skills, creating my own signature dishes. Today, I, I continue to explore and learn and, and grow as a cook, constantly seeking new challenges, new opportunities to expand my culinary repertoire, so to speak, whether that's experimenting with new dishes, exploring sustainable cooking practices, diving into 
pastry, pasta, bread, cheese making, charcuterie, smoking, you know, what, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in all of it. And even starting my own business, doing pop-ups, chef collaborations, private dinners. I guess my journey in cooking is, is an ongoing adventure. I expect it's, it's just going to get more exciting and, and hopefully more rewarding as, as I grow as an industry professional. So going back a little bit, you know, you mentioned that you had all these other kind of jobs and potential career paths before eventually settling on the culinary arts and cooking and restaurants and hospitality. So with all those other jobs, IT, firefighter, everything, was there anything that just, they just didn't stick with you? It just, was it just not interesting or was it not fulfilling? Like looking back on those, what was it about kind of all those collectively that it just never really grabbed you it comes down to being that cooking was just the one thing that i felt i was just i guess naturally pretty good at everything else i felt like i i had to try a little too hard <laughs> you know what i mean i don't know i felt like that was just something i i was good at um and you know at, at this point i've i've not honed any other skill as much as that one on a deeper level food you know is is kind of powerful it you know has the ability to to bring comfort to spark emotion eating foods you had as a kid has the ability to transport you back in time you know through a, a deep sense of nostalgia it can bring people together it can create lasting memories and it's it's always going to be a necessity it's also one of the few jobs that that utilizes all of your senses i can smell, taste, see, and feel when a steak is cooked properly. I, I like to joke with my cook sometimes when I pull something out of the oven without a timer because my nose timer went off. So half the time I can just, you know, simply smell when something's ready to come out. And I always thought that was cool. And the main thing I like about the food career uh, is the ability to create and having that that creative outlet. It can be frustrating though at times to have you know, your your ideas be swayed by maybe silly trends that you're hesitant to jump on board with or clientele taste preferences or restaurant owners or investors or things like that. So, you know, it's challenging, but important to find that middle ground where, you know, you're making everybody happy, but especially yourself. Because I feel like chefs are, are happiest when freely creating and innovating. And that's I think that's when you taste the most love in the food. So like eventually, you know, when you settle on the cooking profession, I think you go to Sinclair Community College for hospitality management, right? What led to you staying local for culinary school versus, you know, going somewhere else? I think it's just because, you know, I'm all my friends are here, you know, my family's here. I really wish I would have taken more opportunity to, to travel around when I was younger, when it would be easier to do so. But I really have stayed in Dayton pretty much my whole life. Going to culinary school, was there a part of the curriculum? Because I looked it up online the other night, specifically Sinclair, but was there a part of their curriculum or a specific class that you felt was worthwhile or particularly interesting you know, to you? I guess more the business side of things is where I think I, I learned the most. When it came to the actual culinary classes, you know, I, I started school after I had already been in the industry for a long time. I was going to school for a hundred different things until I, you know, started taking it seriously. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's go to culinary school now. And 
hopped into that and you know my first few semesters are just making ruse and doing nice work and you know it's, it just, just kind of felt like a waste of time it's like i do this for eight hours every day at least you know the business management side of things um was definitely the most beneficial i felt like the experience i gained in the restaurant kind of surpassed that that i got in the culinary side of things at school if someone in the kitchen now would ask you you know you went to culinary school. Do you think I should, you know, they're serious about being a chef and running their own restaurant one day. What would you tell them? I think that it would really just probably have to come down to how comfortable they felt in the kitchen, right? Like if they felt comfortable enough to gain the experience, the, you know, like the way I did and just grind it out for a few years to, to learn that way. I think that's, that's a great way to do it. And then it definitely saves you the the expense of, you know, college, but, you know, I, I would definitely still recommend taking some business classes of some kind. You know, I do believe that, that you can gain all the experience that you need just by, by working for a talented individual, you know? So at this time, are you actively working in restaurants while going to school or are you in the front of the house or the back of the house side? Uh, I was uh, back of the house. I'd already probably worked in the industry for seven or eight years or so by the time I, you know, started going to um, culinary school. Yeah, I didn't actually finish the, the program because, you know, what I said earlier, where I was just like, I've done all this a million times. And, you know, I, I took the classes uh, that, that I felt I needed to take to, to grow and I stopped taking the ones that I felt were, were repetitive and unnecessary. So once you, you know, complete culinary school, you're actively working in restaurants too. What happens next? Because eventually you pop up as the CDC at, uh, I think, ISS Guggenheimer, right? But there's a, a gap in there. So, you know, what kind of happens over the course of those years before you wind up at Guggenheim? Well, I spent some time uh, working. Let's see, I worked at the Metal Arc restaurant in Centerville. Uh, I had a great experience there. Talented, talented chefs working there for sure. From there, I went to Olive and Urban Dive, which uh, is unfortunately no longer around. That was a small, you know, 38-seat restaurant, two people running the entire kitchen and maybe maybe three uh, wait staff, and that, that was it. So it was a lot of fun, you know, doing Expo Grill and Fry all at the same time. Or, um, and I think that place is where I actually grew a lot as a chef just from I had creative freedom there daily specials we had some challenging things like you know I was still fairly uh, fairly young cook at the time and being tasked with vegan and gluten-free specials and stuff like that you know challenged me to make tasty vegan food which you know is in some respects kind of hard to come by like thoughtful vegan food you know you know that was kind of a, a mediterranean themed place and i i really grew to to love those flavors and you know it's a it's a very broad scope of flavors but in my cooking still i think i tend to lean mediterranean let's see from olive i was a kitchen manager at uh, uh filio for a little while uh it's a wood-fired pizza italian restaurant i helped uh open Ludwig Tap House with Zach and, and Brendan from Jollity. Did you wind up working with either one of them? I can't remember which one worked at Olive, I think, too, as well. 
Zach. That's actually where I met him. I met Zach at Olive, and then he left Olive to go to Rue Maine to work for uh, Chef Ann Kearney. And then when Olive closed, I did the same. I actually went to Rue Maine as well and, and worked there for about a year and a half or so until you know they, they rebranded to Barbie Maine. And I think it was at that time that I went to Filio and then about a year and a half into to that job, uh, Zach gave me a call and he was looking for a sous chef for uh, Mumba Tap House uh, new opening. Yeah, I jumped at that and uh, jumped at the chance to work with, with those guys again. We ran that place for a little while. And then from there, Zach takes a, a position at the ISS Duchenheimer. He's uh, he's looking for a sous chef, so he gives me a call, and you know, once again, I love working with Zach, and and Brendan was the other sous chef, and jumped at the chance to work with them again, and we had a good time working uh, working there. Uh, basically, we we ran the uh, corporate dining dining program for the uh, CareSource headquarters and the other CareSource locations downtown, which included a new build out at the the PNC location, and that was like a I think an eight million dollar kitchen, quite a project, but um, that was a fun place to work. We got to travel a little bit. I don't know how much that happens now, because the entire business model uh, for them changed when COVID happened. We did get sent kind of all over the country to work at different locations that you know maybe they were struggling with one thing, or they had a, a chef that was out sick, or you know something like that, and they needed a they needed someone to fill in or or to help bring numbers up or, or anything like that. So, so yeah, we got some, got some cool traveling experience there and never get the chance to travel. I've traveled very little in my life. So, so I, I enjoyed that. Got to eat at a lot of great restaurants that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. So everybody knows, I think anybody that kind of follows the industry or is involved in it that, you know, when you first start out kind of working at places a year or two, you know, you're trying to build different skill set, experience different environments and everything. But but how difficult is that constantly knowing that you're probably going to be somewhere for a year to two years? How hard is it to kind of get invested long term, you know, in that restaurant or that business? Like, I got to imagine it's pretty hard where, you know, even if you're excited to be somewhere, knowing that you're only going to be there for like a year or two years before Chances are the restaurant rebrands if it's not doing well, or it could close if the owners are tired of it or been running it for a long time, or people that you enjoyed working with wind up leaving and you're kind of the last one standing looking around. Like, how much does that factor into kind of like the mental gymnastics, mental capacity of of being in the industry? It is uh, it definitely adds a little bit of stress to it, but. I've changed jobs enough times at this point that it's kind of the norm for me now. Uh, it's not as stressful as it as it used to be, but yeah, it is, there's something to be said for you know how how invested can you really be if you know in the back of your mind you're like you know that it's it's not necessarily a long term thing. But I think those of us that that you know just care about what we do and and take our job seriously and want to put out a good product. Um, we try to do that regardless of, of how long we're going to be somewhere. So, you know, my, my name's still on the, on the dish. I want it to be fantastic. You know, whether or not I'm going to be there tomorrow is irrelevant. 
you know, when the pandemic rolls around, the ISS Guggenheim, you know, they kind of shut down, right? So what did you wind up doing with your time kind of during the time stuff was shut down? That time period is pretty much when I really started thinking about my own business and and what I wanted to do in, in building something for myself rather than just hop into the next job. Um, so it was during the pandemic when you started thinking about Gem City Butchery. Basically, just just having that that downtime to to reflect. We all got furloughed. You know, the the business shut down, and they have the ability to work remotely, so they had no need to to staff the buildings anymore, which meant no business for us. Basically, the the last few jobs that that I had worked at, including at ISS Guggenheimer. I worked with uh, my business partner Elliot. Um, that's that's where we met. I hired him at Table Thirty Three when I was there. Was eager to hire him again at uh, at ISS. Yeah, he's he's great. He's a workhorse, and we always we always hit it off, and you know shared a lot of the same values and work ethic and that kind of thing. You know, we were always bouncing ideas off of each other, like, oh, we should do this. Like, it'd be cool if Dayton had this or, you know, whatever. And then eventually that kind of developed into, dude, we should do this. <laughs> like, why aren't, why aren't we doing it? The idea kind of started with um, a bodega. You know, we were initially thinking about opening up a bodega with like a, a full service lunch counter. That eventually just developed into... You know what it is now. I've actually always wanted to do a butchery, mainly because I, you know, I, I enjoy things like sausage making and making bacon and you know stuff like that. But also because you know it, it also kind of has some more attractive hours than a restaurant does. You know, it might provide me with a, a better work-life balance if I if I can work some some retail hours uh, rather than you know the the restaurant hours where you know you might get stuck working morning to night you know lunch lunch and dinner so yeah just kind of started from that took the time to you know start the business plan at, during COVID and you know making connections and and then the the year following when things started to, to open back up again, Elliot and I uh, both took jobs at Sueno. So, you know, we were working together every day. He was, he was like, you know, my main prep guy. I was the uh, executive Sue. Since we were working all day together, um, you know, we're still bouncing ideas off of each other, still going to meetings after work or still hanging out after work and working on the business plan and, and that kind of thing. And uh, then you know, eventually it got to a point where, you know, we started, we started booking a lot of caterings. We started doing pop-ups and stuff like that. The schedule was just kind of conflicting with, with that of our day job. We both uh, stepped out of there. That time is when I started working at Jolly. Elliot uh, is working. Uh, he's running the catering program over at uh, Amber Rose. We're at the point now we're ready to start showing our business plan to people um, we're meeting with with the city and with local developers to try to find a location and and secure financing and exploring you know grants and things like that, that the the city has to offer you know hopefully we get some uh, we gain some traction with you know the kind of founding of Gem City Butchery 
you guys land on this concept after kicking around kind of a few ideas, but what was it about butchery that kind of you realized, you know, you were super into? I don't know. I think that's the task that almost every job I've had where I was, you know, the executive chef. Butchery was always part of my role. You know, just most of the time, it's just because it's it's an expensive product and it needs to be cut to the right portion size. Otherwise, you know, it's wasteful. If you put somebody new on butchery, you're, you're going to regret it. I was, I was always tasked with with doing that, you know, whether it was steaks or fish or chicken or whatever. Well, the places that I, I try to work at are the places that are sourcing things locally. Back when when you could get Ed Hill's chicken, that stuff was, was the best chicken you could get. We'd get 50 to 75 chickens a week, and I got really good at breaking them down in, you know, 30, 40 seconds or so, you know, from there. And, just started doing uh, steak butchery and, you know, getting primals and subprimals and, you know, learning trussing and stuffing and tying and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's also just that I've always wanted to go to a butcher shop here in Dayton, but we don't really have any. You know, obviously the meat counter at DLM is phenomenal, but, you know, I, I also think that, that they have a lot more overhead than I'm going to have. So therefore I should be able to offer the same product for less money. Did you do a lot of market research or have to, you know, before settling on the concept, you know, making sure that a butcher shop would work in Dayton? Yes. And uh, basically what, where I landed at with that is the concept as a whole is it's a butcher shop, a smokehouse, you know, a deli counter and a catering operation. I didn't believe that having a standalone butcher shop was sustainable. Uh, not in not in today's you know supermarket age. Nobody's going to make an extra chip just for a piece of chicken or you know a sausage. In order to make that more sustainable, and also like being a as little waste as possible entity is kind of the goal. So that's kind of where the smokehouse portion comes into it. Is it, it also allows us to ensure that our butcher case has the freshest possible product in it. You know, whatever doesn't sell in the butcher case one day, we can smoke and, and sell for lunch the following day. Um, or we can, you know, turn it into bacon or risola or sausage or whatever, and then, and then refill the butchery case. We also want to do kind of like a, a by the pound deli, whether it's, selling smokehouse products like smoked ribs and brisket and pork shoulder and sausages and that kind of thing. Or, you know, we, we also want to get into deli meats, you know, chicken and turkey and ham and stuff like that and, and doing them all from scratch. Another aspect of that is wholesale. We've had a lot of wholesale interests already and we, we tried it for a bit. We made all the uh, Italian chicken sausages for uh, Tony and Pete's on Third Street. Uh, we made all the meatballs for Tony and Pete's, made some chicken cutlets and you know, a couple other things. We sold some wholesale sausages to a couple other restaurants. And ultimately, when you're making sausages in, you know, quantities of hundreds, you know, that's that's a all day thing when you don't have a location. You've got to either rent a kitchen or in my case, you know, the guys at Jolly are, are so supportive. They gave me a key and a code to the building and 
when they're not there, I'm, I'm free to use it as I please. So that was absolutely huge and, um, you know, meant the world to us. So we would go in on, you know, on Mondays on Jollity's day off and haul our, you know, commercial meat grinder and our sausage stuffers. And I'd have to order all the casings from Amazon and then go, you know, to a wholesale store and buy all the meat and cut it up and grind it and then season it and emulsify it, stuff it, twist it, you know, it, it became like, you know, 10, 12 hours to make 200, 250 sausages. And so, I mean, it's, it's a learning experience, right? So, so we, it would definitely be more fruitful for us to do that. You know, when we, when we have a location and we, we have, you know, contract pricing with our vendors and, and we're not having to buy things retail and borrow space from people or rent a kitchen or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think wholesale is just something that, you know, we'll, we'll still take on the occasional wholesale order, but doing a, a you know, a weekly commitment or, or something like that will probably reserve until we're, we've got our brick and mortar open. So once you have the brick and mortar open, essentially it'll be a butcher shop. You'll probably have a small food menu, right? Uh, be available for catering some wholesale too as well. So there's kind of four different almost kind of business models tied into the whole overall concept, right? Yeah. Um, we also hope to to have um, a little bit of a, of a retail sales floor, not anything crazy, but more locally sourced stuff. And, you know, maybe our our signature spices and rubs and, and sauces and, you know, we could sell grist bread and pasta and, you know, biscuits from salt block and things like that just to, to, to keep partnerships alive and collaborations alive and, and to just try to try to bring the, the good local stuff to. It's almost like a marketplace aspect. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, on a on a smaller scale, for sure. I think the butchery and the the smokehouse counter. You know that we're thinking. You know, just a couple a couple shelves of of locally sourced groceries, maybe some produce from local farms, but not like aisles and aisles. And yeah, butcher counter, smokehouse counter, uh, by the pound delis, and then a commercial kitchen in the back where the the catering operation runs out of. You kind of touched on it earlier, but where are you at with the opening process? Are you guys, you're still looking for a space, right? You haven't found the ideal spot? Correct. Yeah, we've we've toured um, several spaces, none of which, you know, felt right. We don't want to rush anything. We don't want to force anything. We're just, uh, we're letting it happen organically. Um, we actually, um, we've been shopping for some equipment uh, that can, you know, help make uh you know caterings easier and more profitable in the future you know up until this point we've been renting smokers for our pop-ups and for caterings and you know paying for that rental and a rental kitchen and wood and charcoal and you know all that other stuff and then putting you know 18 hours of work into smoking brisket and you know that doesn't include the hours of trimming and seasoning and then we got to figure out, okay, where do we store everything, um, raw and prepared? You know, where do we where do we heat everything up for the pop up? 
or do we time it out so that things are coming off the smoker right when the pop-up's starting? <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of a logistical uh, nightmare having to worry about contracts and stuff like that for for a smoker rental. And then are we going to be done by the time our <laughs> our our rental is up? <laughs> you know. So actually, last uh, last Monday, Elliot and I uh, rented a, a truck and drove out to Michigan and bought a 1800 pound uh, smoker on a trailer that is in our possession now. And we're, we're going to be utilizing that for uh, some pop-ups in the near future. Aside from that, it's, uh, yeah, it's just meeting with uh, developers. You know, ultimately our goal is to find a developer that is willing to take the tenant improvement costs like the initial build out, you know, take those costs on themselves and then build that into our lease agreement uh, so that, you know, we don't have to put, you know, 300,000 plus into a build out because we're already going to be needing that for equipment. <laughs> How difficult is it to find a suitable space? I mean, obviously you're going through it now and, and have been, but Lauren Gay, who you worked with uh, probably during your time at Sueno, you know, it took her like four years before she found a spot for her wine shop that she's working on right now. Is it just lack of spaces that have the functionality where it's, you know, some don't have proper plumbing or electrical or, or is it just sm the spaces are just smaller than what you're going to need? Like what has been kind of the biggest challenge aside from, you know, ha it having the kind of feel or in be in the right location, but are there other aspects that have made it kind of difficult? Yeah. And, you know, we also, you know, we're trying to also consider when, when considering location, Dayton offers that first floor fund, which is a partial loan forgiveness. Uh, so if you're on the first level of a business um, and basically you can get your loan through the city of Dayton and then they will, after a year of on-time payments or something along those lines, they'll forgive a certain percentage of that loan. So that's an attractive reason to stay downtown, but we're not necessarily married to downtown. I wouldn't mind being a little closer to Oakwood, Kettering, you know, those, those areas. Being on the border of, of one city to another, I think, is kind of our ideal spot. The place, some places that we've looked at have had serious potential, but you know needed so much work that it was just going to be too costly. Maybe the landlord was said we could do whatever we wanted to the space, but he wasn't going to put any money into it, or you know that kind of thing. And you know, I, on the one hand, I get it, you know, but on the other hand, I can't liquidate those assets upon lease termination. So why would I make those improvements? It sounds like, you know, you guys are still looking for a space. You kind of have the concept business plan all flushed out, doing some paperwork probably too as well for, you know, loan and financing and whatnot. But you guys have also done, you know, some pop-ups with Koji Burger and, and also just, you know, done some pop-ups straight out of Jollity. With the pop-ups that you've done so far, has all that been kind of menu development, like uh, dishes and stuff that are eventually going to be on the food menu at Gem City or... Has that all just been kind of more tactical in the sense of just figuring out the logistics and everything? And those dishes are just kind of baseline and they'll probably evolve uh, by the time you guys open. 
it's a little bit of both. You know, it's it's good practice for us. Uh, it's and it's a good way to you know figure out what our our clientele wants, as well as you know just work out some some basic recipes. Make sure we've got our sausage making technique down. We did that uh, Oktoberfest pop up last year. You know, I think we made like four or five hundred francs for it. So I mean, it's just it's just good practice. And now we've got a killer all beef frank recipe that we developed. Now, all of our recipes are our own. All of our rubs and, and sauces and all that. And really, it's just a great way to to nail down our our smoking technique and our, you know how much time, how often do we rotate, how you know what temperature do we hold it at, how much wood do we need. You know, it's great to figure those things out ahead of time. Not only all that, but, you know, the, the main purpose of the, the pop-ups have been raising capital for things like the smoker we just bought, as well as um, just to have a proof of concept that we can take to the bank and say, look, you know, we've, we've made money doing this. Put, put your trust in us and give us more. <laughs> developing all your own stuff too as well obviously there's an avenue to potentially bottle and sell some of that stuff retail but how hard is it how difficult is it when you're coming up with sauces and maybe even rubs to a certain extent that you don't wind up i guess making something that people identify as someone else's you know like like if you wind up having a just a traditional kind of hickory barbecue sauce right like how do you Make sure that what you're developing isn't along the lines of something that people find, you know, in, in the grocery store and would be like, oh, well, their stuff tastes exactly like this. So they must be using that when really it's something that you've developed. We just try to be a little bit more creative and think a little bit more outside the box than like traditional sauces. I think two of our favorites that that we've been using um, for, for some caterings, uh, we make a blackberry balsamic barbecue. And a honey orange mirin goji chong uh, style barbecue. Those are always big hits and are significantly different enough from what what people are used to that it, it's at least memorable. With that, you know, people I'm sure will say, "Oh, well, it's not traditional barbecue if you're not doing it this way, or or using this certain style, or or whatever." For the smokehouse aspect, the barbecue aspect of the whole operation. Is there a barbecue style that you guys kind of mimic or, or gravitate towards, whether it's, you know, Carolina or Texas or Kansas City, or is it just kind of a little bit of everything and really kind of your own thing? It's kind of a little bit of everything. Um, for example, like brisket, well, we definitely go the Texas route with brisket, kind of Puritans in that sense. Salt, pepper, maybe a little mustard binder. And then 18 hours of smoke. And, and that's it. Whereas, you know, with, with pork butt or belly, or we, we tend to go a little heavier with, um, you know, spice blends. Typically, everything stays um, unsauced until we serve it. And then half the time, we, we might even just serve it on the side. Because, you know, if you are a Puritan, you don't want it sauced. We don't want to force you. Is there, you know, an aspect of kind of the, the butchery side of things, you know, is there a, an animal that you particularly enjoy? I know you touched on developing kind of the skill set with chicken, but is there, is it whole hog, whole cow? 
Anything that you particularly enjoy breaking down when you get the opportunity? A whole hog, uh, definitely. I've actually never had the opportunity to break down a whole cow. I've had some, you know, some large cuts from a cow, but never, never a whole cow. I was actually talking with my my brothers recently about about getting one and and doing that, and then just splitting it amongst the family, um, just for just for the experience, you know. Eventually, we would love to get into a whole animal butchery uh, with Gem City Butchery, but it's my understanding that 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 just involves a lot more, you know, red tape, hoops to jump through, FDA, USDA type approvements and licensing, and and at that point, I would want a facility that has a butcher room that's refrigerated and can be hosed down afterwards. You know, I feel like uh, doing that in a you know, just a regular commercial kitchen might get a little hairy. Yeah. I mean, there's different ways to probably go about it. You know, we have a Hungarian butcher that opened here not too long ago and, and they do it, but they have, they had their smokehouse attached or they were doing smoking within kind of the restaurant. And I guess from what they've posted about, there was some stuff that the contractor, it sounds like didn't build out in the correct way. And it, and it led to kind of a fire and then being shut down for a while. Now they have an external smoker and everything. So yeah, I'm sure there's different pros and cons to having the dedicated space, whether it's, you know, food safety and also longevity of the product and, and everything like that too. So, but yeah, something, I guess, you know, you can always potentially on the location, just expand into it or, or possibly have a different offsite location where you do it too as well, I guess, but that's obviously, you know, down the road. So will you guys wind up, do you think doing any sort of online ordering or, or shipping or was it i'm imagining it'll be local to start out but eventually is that something that you guys would like to be able to to do and offer absolutely yeah yeah we've we've been talking about that um we actually we don't have a website yet but that's something that that we, we need to get working on um because i do want to build that you know online ordering platform where you know maybe it's you know butcher packs and six pack of sausages and you know that type of thing or you know it could be also valuable for for catering orders and scheduling that type of stuff definitely uh, would be would be helpful and is in the plans for sure a rough projected kind of timeline of of opening or is it really just dependent upon once you guys find a, a suitable location before you can even estimate when you guys would actually be open Yep, that's pretty much where we're at. When we when we establish that location is when we plan to basically ask for the financing for said location, and then um, at that point work with the developers and contractors to to establish a, a deadline and opening date. You know, being located in Dayton, you guys could have probably you know gone to Cincinnati and and tried to set up there. But I'm imagining you guys wanted to stay local to Dayton just because that's kind of where you guys are from and. And expand, you know, within that aspect of the the city and the community. Do you feel like being in Dayton, you have more kind of freedom and, and less pressure due to it being kind of a smaller market when, you know, you compare it to Cincinnati, which is, you know, less than an hour away or Columbus here is, you know, an only an hour's drive where if you were in one of these markets, maybe there'd be more essentially pressure on, on opening um, sooner where you can kind of take your time and, and do it right in Dayton? Yeah, I think we're definitely both just, we, we've both lived in Dayton for so long and we've worked in Dayton for so long. We just, we know the market here better than, than anywhere else. We feel like, you know, aside from, you know, like 
DLM and maybe East Dayton Meats or something along those lines. There's really no butcher shop and, and you can't really get barbecue that isn't a chain, um, you know, like city barbecue or whatever. And uh, yeah, I just, I definitely just know the market in Dayton better than, than others. Do you think as Dayton continues to kind of redevelop itself and kind of, you know, they've redone parts of downtown, right? Jolity, Sueno are both kind of in that area. But as things kind of revitalize, if you will, do you think more people will look at Dayton as possibly a location to set up, you know, their first concept or maybe expand into versus the bigger the city, the more established the city and the food culture is? Usually you have less time to develop concepts where, you know, it's just more expensive for your lease. So you have to be kind of hitting the ground running, so to speak. So do you see or foresee more people kind of looking to Dayton here in the next few years for for their concepts? I think so. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of like technology firms that, that operate in Dayton that are bringing a lot of a lot of people just to the to the area uh, for jobs. And I think, you know, with that, the demand for, you know, places to eat and, and shop is definitely going to grow. And, you know, right now, you know, let's say we were to open in downtown, there's, aside from, you know, one sketchy Kroger's, there's not really a whole lot of uh, shopping opportunities downtown. Dorothy Lane Market's great and they have a bunch of locations, but they're a little bit of a drive. I mean, it's not. It's not too terrible uh, for downtown or anything, but so you kind of mentioned earlier too uh, in our conversation, you know, a standalone butcher shop you didn't think would be able to work if it was just a butcher shop, like, you know, old school, traditional styled. Do you think that that format is essentially dead um, just with kind of the way things are now or, or it's a slowly dying art form where just being a standalone local neighborhood butcher is just not possible? from a business aspect? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, it's it's coming back and that we'll have more and more, you know, industry professional run operations. But, you know, unfortunately it does seem like it is kind of hard to find. I've lived here almost all my life and I can't recall a single standalone butcher shop that's ever existed here. So and if it has, I, I certainly haven't been to it. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I'm more hopeful than anything that it's just on its way back. And, you know, I, I would love to see, you know, fewer chains and, and more independently run places. You know, if a standalone butcher shop were to exist in this market, I think it would have to lean really heavily on wholesale and, you know, restaurant supply, you know, selling steaks to local restaurants and, and that kind of thing. Where do you see Dayton as a food scene kind of headed? Uh, do you feel it's headed in the right direction or is there still stuff that needs to be improved or implemented before it can really grow? I think we're on our way there. Um, we've got a bunch of great, relatively new restaurants. You know, there's Jollity and Grist and Sueno and Salt Block. And, and all those places are, are run by, you know, chefs and, and industry professionals, right? love to see more of that you know like even lauren gay's wine shop you know general managers taking on you know ownership roles and, and stuff like that is is awesome and i think as long as as 
you know, we're pushing that and we're, we're trying to, I know the, the industry has taken a, a hit, you know, cause of COVID and all that, you know, I know this overall employment and operations are, are down all across the board from what I understand. The industry's done a lot of wrong things along the way to, to force people out and to, you know, during the pandemic, people, people realized that, you know, maybe they were, they were working too hard and not getting paid enough, you know, um, they didn't like the way they were being treated at work or, or the conditions at work weren't good or, you know, but I think ultimately the main three things that challenging um, for the, for the growth of the industry right now is the high turnover caused by, you know, low wages and long hours. Um, so if we can reverse that, <laughs> I don't know that doing the exact opposite of that is the right move, you know, high wages and low hours, that would sure be nice. What's next for you, you know, professionally? I mean, obviously you're you know, still at Jollity, uh, helping out with, uh, the Koji burger concept too, as well, that they're, uh, getting ready to kind of spin off into its uh, own location, but you're still working on, you know, all the stuff with Gem City Butchery, but what's next? For the last, oh, I don't know, five months or so, I've been um, overseeing the food program at Silver Slipper Wine Bar on uh, Wayne Avenue in Dayton. You know, they've, they've been known for primarily oysters and, and charcuterie and definitely the, the best oysters that you can get in, in Dayton for sure. And the, the charcuterie is excellent. But they, they contacted me uh, wanting to kind of just revamp the, the menu a little bit and grow the scope of what they're doing outside of charcuterie and oysters. So I've been uh, working on that, probably on our like fifth or sixth menu rendition at this point with about, I don't know, seven to ten different small plates that are all very unique and and can't really find them anywhere else in town. Are those small plates pretty standalone? It's not something that's related really to Gem City? Correct. It's more on brand for Silver Slipper. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, last April, I did a pop-up at uh, Silver Slipper as uh, Gem City Butchery. That, w- that went really well. We had a really good turnout. Most of our pop-ups actually have awesome turnouts. You know, we kind of figured out our, you know, our promotional formula so to speak and it seems like if we're if we're able to get a pop-up planned post a menu do that a month in advance and then pay for some facebook ads we'll sell out every time at least we have every time we've done it so far <laughs> so yeah that's been that's been humbling um you know our, our very first pop-up there's a line around the block which is i'd never expected to see that and i honestly i think our to date, I think our first pop-up was the most profitable out of out of all of them. So we got a handful of more questions for you. Some we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, but before that, we got a couple random ones. So this question was left behind from the previous guest on the podcast, sommelier and wine director, Jayton Paul of Published on Maine in Vancouver, Canada. He left behind, if you've had a Canadian wine, where was it from and what was your favorite? Wish I had a proper answer for that, but uh, I really don't uh, don't drink a whole lot of wine. And when I do, I'll, I'll be damned if I can remember what it was uh, a week later. You know, 
I'm I'm actually the worst at selecting wines. I usually like I'll I'll ask a a friend who's a you know wine director or sommelier or something for a suggestion when I'm picking up wine because I just don't think I have the the brain capacity for <laughs> any of that stuff. It just does not stick with me for some reason. Uh, and even working at a wine bar right now, you know, I'm I'm trying different wines all the time um, to try to you know expand my my knowledge in that sense and definitely kind of figuring out what i what i like and whatnot but you know actual recollection of the winery and you know the process or anything like that is is still pretty difficult for me what's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest can be anything what was the best thing you've had to eat this year next question comes from one of our listeners they wrote in What's one ingredient you'd like to work with and incorporate into a future dish that has not appeared in your restaurant or on one of your menus yet? It's a good question. I'm definitely kind of impulsive when it comes to that kind of stuff. You know, if I want to, you know, run a special for something just because I want to use an ingredient, I will, (laughs) you know, but, uh, you know, it might, might sound kind of cliche, but I love working with truffles, but I never have put anything truffle related on a menu. And I don't know that Dayton's necessarily the best market for for truffles, but that is it's a fun ingredient and I really enjoy working with it. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, so nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back on it? guess I can't really pinpoint any any one person or event or or anything that that helped shape that you know as far as my past influences you know I'm not much of a you know I, I don't necessarily follow all the celebrity chefs and you know I, I don't necessarily know everybody out there and what they're up to but I, I do have a lot of local uh, inspiration. You know, I'm a, obviously kind of a, a homebody since I've just been in Dayton for so long and really not anywhere else. But the uh, the chefs here are, are fantastic. And, and my friends, uh, Zach and, and Brendan and Justin Moeller at Salt, Salt Block and Dave Rawson at, at Meadowlark. And, you know, they're, they're all, they've all been very positive influences for me. And Zach and, and Brendan... And I, you know, we're, we're pretty close and, and they're daily sources of inspiration for me because those guys fucking grind, man. They grind. And when I'm feeling tired and uninspired, I just look at what they're doing and, and it, it gives me a little kick in the ass. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Honestly, I would have to say, because I, I believe that that's a tool just as much as it is an, an ingredient. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So scenario you usually give person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled, stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Places that uh, you contribute to are closed. Where would you point them? I have several times uh, referred people to you know out, out to um, Cincinnati. Soda and Boca are are you know two favorites of mine. There's a uh, Brussels sprout and scallop dish at uh, Boca that just blew my mind the last time I was there. It was amazing. I would I would probably recommend Boca. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So place you have not 
traveled to, but you still want to visit one day. And then a restaurant you have not dined at, but you still would like to get to and eat at one day. Answer to both would probably go hand in hand. I'd say Franklin's Barbecue in Texas. He's, you know, kind of the barbecue god when it comes to, to smoked brisket. I've got his books and, you know, his, his story's always been been really inspiring and intriguing and love to, to see what the operation looks like now versus, you know, doing it out of the Oklahoma Joe in the backyard when he started, you know? Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Opening week at uh, Sueno, the hearth got way too hot and blew the Ansel system. And <laughs> that has always been my worst nightmare that I would be, you know, stuck cleaning up all the antifreeze looking goo. And, and that kitchen there is massive. So it was, it was a four or five hour task just to like sop it all up dump the fryers and, you know, all that. And then you have to have a professional cleaning service come in and clean up after that. You know, it was, it was just a, it was a disaster. <laughs> Aside from that, you know, it's happened a couple times now where I've worked somewhere where someone dumped filtered oil into a fryer with the spigot still open and, you know, shoes start melting and that kind of thing. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy for you but you just can't stay away i'm not a big fan of pizza rolls in general but when you shallow fry them in some oil and then toss them in tabasco and tony chachu's creole seasoning it is fucking incredible um so yeah fried pizza rolls but you can't deep fry them if you deep fry them all the all the goodies just boil out and you end up with a shell so you have to like shallow fry it and pull them out when they're when they're golden brown when they start popping. You know, aside from that, pretty guilty of uh, getting McDonald's late night after after a busy shift where I don't feel like cooking anything for myself. I think uh, Big Mac is is burger perfection, man. Give me a Big Mac with extra pickles and onions, and and I'm good. What's one cookbook that you think everybody should own? I think new cooks should own. Ruhlman's 20 by Michael Ruhlman. It's a uh, collection of 20 different tools and techniques that, that every cook should know, whether that's roasting or braising or, or whatever. It goes into detail on, on all of those techniques and provides several recipes that are, that are just kick-ass. But what I like most about that book is, you know, earlier I said, you know, salt is a tool just as much as it is an ingredient. And I, that book, you know, talks about that as well, where, you know, it's, it's not just for flavor. Like you can use it to pull moisture out of something, you know, like a piece of frozen cod, you can get pull all the water out of it before you fry it by salting it first, or you can make a, or like just the way that, that salt affects raw zucchini, like kind of gives it a cooked texture or curing, um, you know, making charcuterie. And Michael Rollman's got a got a bunch of books. His charcuterie book is also excellent. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, as well as the book Ratio, which uh, teaches you, okay, if you're you're gonna use this much flour, then you know, you should probably use this much baking powder or you know what I mean? 
it gives you a good idea of, of ratios in a recipe. So I, I would say Romans 20 and, and ratio are, are great books that that beginning cook should, should definitely read. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over the course of your career, you can kind of point to this as like almost your aha moment. Like you knew you could do this professionally once you made this. Probably when I was, uh, just living with roommates and cooking for everybody on the weekends, roast prime rib and some crispy potatoes and, you know, nothing, nothing complicated, but you know, was, was enough to, to, I don't know, I guess, give me some confidence that I felt like I knew what I was doing. I'm a Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was, uh, I know you mentioned you didn't kind of pay attention to too many of the people on TV, but, uh, if you did and Bourdain was one of them, uh, is there a moment episode scene about him that always stands out to you? And if he wasn't one of them, was there anybody else who you did kind of pay a, a little attention to, you know, whether it was like an M roll or a Jacques Pepin or, or somebody along those lines? Um, I'm definitely a, a Bourdain fan for sure. I I loved his his TV series. Um, I wouldn't say that there's any one thing that really sticks out to me about the the TV series because he you know he's he's such a good writer and such a good speaker that there's something profound in every episode where it's just like, damn, that was good. <laughs> you know, he says something great every time. Uh, I definitely enjoyed Kitchen Confidential. That was I, I read that early on in my career. That definitely stuck with me. Where can people find you? Social media, websites coming soon, I think, right? But uh, you know, if people uh, are looking for you, where can they find you? They can hit me up on Facebook or Instagram at Gem City Butchery. You'll see that that we don't we don't post a whole lot, really. You know, it's probably not a, in our favor to not post a whole lot, but, you know, we, we really don't like posting just for the sake of posting. We want to have something either new or, or exciting or fun or whatever. We don't want to just, you know, recycle old pictures or, or anything like that. So, so, yeah, we don't we don't post a whole lot, but when we do, uh, it's usually to announce uh, a pop up or that, you know, we we crossed a milestone or, you know, something along those lines. It can also be reached at jonathan.mazera at gmail.com. Any pop-ups on the horizon? We're in the process of planning one now that we, we got this um, smoker. So we haven't set a date yet, but we do expect to do one in the, in the next couple months for sure. Yeah, and sometimes you'll have a, a sandwich or something pop up on the Koji Burger menu. I know you've done a, a few different variations. I think the one that we had was kind of a play on a McRib that uh, that you guys came up with. That was all them. I just told them they should. They already had fried ribs on their menu. And I was like, dude, you should make this into a fucking sandwich. <laughs> and so they did, and they called it the McMez. But uh, you can also find uh, your food over at Silver Slipper Wine Bar, too, as well. I think they're open uh, Thursday through Sunday, like 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. Yep, kitchen closes at midnight. You can find you in the kitchen at Jolly, and I'll be keeping an eye out for the next uh, pop-up announcement from, from Gen City Butchery uh, on Instagram there. And looking forward to you guys kind of finally getting your space and uh, being able to kind of build out the the brick and mortar side of the operation and and get kind of everything 
moving forward. There's a, a lot of stuff to do, I'm sure, for once that moment happens. But, um, you know, based on every, everybody who's gone through it, but once it kind of gets open, it sounds like it'll be a really unique concept that uh, nothing like it in Dayton. It's uh, always something pretty cool to see uh, when something really unique pops up in a place and, and there's nothing like it. So, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye out and uh, hopefully uh, be seeing you soon, whether it's at Jolly or, or the pop-up. Well, I appreciate you so much, Ray. A big thanks again to Jonathan for coming on the podcast, taking some time ahead of his busy schedule. And like I said, he's all over the place. Uh, as he mentioned, kind of all the places that you can find his influence, his food at. So I know he's pretty busy, uh, always kind of jumping from one thing to the next while he's also working on Gem City Butchery. So make sure to follow him on Instagram for any future updates. They'll be posting about different pop-ups and stuff that they do, catering events, stuff like that. So uh, it's at Gem City Butchery for the overall account, his personal account at Jonathan Mazera. And then you can also follow uh, Silver Slipper Wine Bar, Jollity, and Koji Burger. Sometimes they have a dish that winds up on the Koji Burger menu. Like they had the kind of McRib influence by the McRib, the sandwich that they had when we went. They've had some other stuff. They've done Soul Gem City Butchery pop-ups out of Jollity too as well. So I'm sure they'll do more of those in the future. And then, you know, he's in the kitchen at Jollity too as well. So you'll see him there with Zach and Brennan doing their thing and Nathan up front. So yeah, if you haven't been to any of those establishments, make sure to go ahead and check those out. Dayton's just got a cool little food scene right now. And it's slowly just adding on more and more and more. You know, they got kind of this core little group right now. And then there's just more things are going to keep getting added on. It's kind of like a mix of, it's got the sleepiness of like downtown Columbus uh, outside of the short north mixed with kind of the old school brick building architecture of Cincinnati. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, in a handful of years, they're going to have some some more really cool concepts that are opening or have opened by then. I know it'll start to become kind of a, a little bit of a player in the Ohio food scene, which will be cool to see since it's so close to Columbus here and kind of in the mix and kind of be this little triangle with Columbus and Cincinnati, which would be awesome. But uh, follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever preferred podcast app or player that you use. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, all that stuff. We're on all of them. You can find us. If for some reason you can't find us on one, for whatever reason, shoot us an email, contact portal on the website too as well will work. Just let us know where you can't find us. We'll take a look at it. Make sure that we're on there. If there's an issue with the RSS feed or something, we'll get it fixed. But Everything should be up and running. Haven't seen anything come through, so it should be good to find us. You can search Spoon Mob in the podcast app. You can use links that we post for new episodes. We have standing link in our Instagram bio too as well. You can go through the website and click on the desired link for a specific episode. So a bunch of different ways you can get to the podcast. Make sure to vote for us for the Restaurant Industry Awards, Ohio Restaurant Association. We're up for Best Community Partner. We're in that category. There's us and three other finalists. Give a, Go ahead and give us a vote if you haven't. But otherwise, that is it for this week. Appreciate every who's been listening appreciate everyone who's taking time out to vote for us appreciate everybody who is writing in questions comments feedback helping spread the word all that stuff can't thank you guys enough uh, for the support just kind of keeping this thing going so more cool stuff on the way as always interesting conversations interesting people doing cool stuff within the hospitality industry so super excited to kind of keep releasing episodes uh, as we get into kind of the home stretch of 2023 here and um, yeah if you're new here welcome if you've been here for a while thank you for your continued support and we will talk to you guys next week on thursday